As sports history fans, we often reminisce about the legends. Willis Reed limping onto the NBA Finals Court, Kurt Schilling's bloody sock, Kerry Strug's courageous dismount, and so many more. These moments often define sports history. But what about the countless injuries that did not become legends or careers that were derailed due to inadequate care? That's where this episode's sponsor comes in. Introducing to you, ILP Sports Consultants, your trusted sports injury partner, available 24-7. Brian Maelli at ILP Sports Consultants has over 20 years of experience in the orthopedic and sports medicine industry, and he has worked with athletes across the gamut, from youth to amateurs, professionals, in almost every sport played in the United States of America, accommodating athletes at every stage of their career. This adaptability ensures that ILP services are perfectly tailored to your skill level, no matter where you are in your athletic journey. With ILP, you are in control. Choose the steps that matter most to you. Diagnosis, treatment plan, recovery, or the whole journey. ILP services are tailored to your unique needs. Rushing for care is a common pitfall, leading to future problems. ILP Sports Consultants helps you make the right decisions, ensuring that you receive timely and safe care. And here's the bonus. Brian hosts the Injured List podcast, sharing insights and athlete stories you won't want to miss. Whether you're a concerned parent or grandparent or an athlete yourself seeking guidance, ILP Sports Consultants is your beacon of hope in sports injury management. Visit ILPSports.com today. That's the letters ILPSports.com. ILP Sports Consultants, where your well-being is the priority and your recovery is the mission. Choose ILP Sports Consultants for a healthier sports journey, helping you get back in the game the smart way. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the ballpark. This is the Baseball History Timeline Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Wilkinson. And in this episode, we take a look at the 1905 Major League Baseball season. But before we do, a few housekeeping items. Yes, I did say the Baseball History Timeline podcast. The first five episodes of this were under the name The Pastime Timeline, but for now I've decided to change it to the Baseball History Timeline to make it easier to search for. Maybe I'll change it back at a, at a later date, but uh, we'll see how this goes with this name. This show is available wherever you find your podcasts. Please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a five-star rating to help push this show out to more of our fellow baseball fanatics. Another thing, I've gone about as far as I can without using the team nicknames for uh, this early part of the century. Uh, A lot of the teams didn't have the names that we know now, so it could get a bit confusing, but I am going to start to work in the team nicknames of the ones that have stayed that name. Uh, up till the present date. So with that being said, the 1905 season. You can make a strong argument that no single baseball player dominated a single year from start to finish like Christy Mathewson did in 1905. From the first day of the season to the last game of the World Series, the New York Giants right-handed flamethrower is as identifiable with a certain campaign as any player in history. Mathewson, nicknamed the Christian Gentleman because of his name as well as his faith, was the quintessential American icon of the time. His wholesome nature appealed to children and parents alike, but at the same time Mathewson was the ultimate competitor and did show human frailty. We'll see that later when we go through the timeline events. 
He served as a balancing force to manager John McGraw's often outlandish behavior. It's likely McGraw would have had no use for Mathewson if he wasn't such an overwhelming force on the mound. Mathewson indeed transformed the Giants from a great team into a championship team. Once the Giants assented to lower themselves by taking the field against the American League champions, Mathewson seemed to make it his mission to prove his owner and manager had a point about a so-called inferior American League. He fired three complete game shutouts as New York defeated the Philadelphia Athletics four games to one. That's 27 consecutive zeros against the best team in the American League. He allowed just 14 hits and 15 base runners in those 27 frames. The most impressive aspect of this feat was that the three complete games weren't in a seven-game series, but a five-game series. The initial rainout of Game 3 did give him an extra day's rest, but it was still three complete game shutouts over six days, one with two days rest, the other with just one day of rest. He went to the hill every other contest and walked off an unblemished victor each time. I know what you're probably thinking, this was the dead ball era and pitching dominated the entire league. That's obviously true as an astonishing 15 of the top 20 all-time ERA leaders were active in 1905. Winning teams typically had multiple pitchers with 20 games. But a quick comparison to World Series feats in another pitching-rich era puts it in more perspective. The two greatest hurlers of the 1960s, lefty Sandy Koufax and righty Bob Gibson, came the close to matching Mathewson's World Series performance. In 1965, Koufax went the full nine to blank the Twins in both games five and seven, but he was beaten in game two of that series. Gibson had three complete game wins over Boston in 1967, but gave up three runs in the process. In 1968, Gibson allowed one run combined in games one and four, but he ended up losing game seven to lose the series to Detroit. Hardly anybody in recent decades has gotten three starts in a single series, never mind going the distance in all three. So in my humble opinion, Christie's fall classic feat must go down as the best. And oh yeah, his regular season wasn't too bad either. Matty easily won the pitching version of the Triple Crown in the NL. His 31 wins were eight more than anyone else in the league. He was the only pitcher to surpass 200 strikeouts with 206. And even though the entire top 10 in NL ERA came in under 2.50, Mathewson posted a mark nearly half that at 1.28. Only one other pitcher, Ed Ruhlbach of Chicago, finished with an ERA under 2. So the on-field accolades were clearly there, but what made Mathewson even more special at the start of a new century was his status as a role model to young boys learning to appreciate the national pastime. He both looked and acted the part of the All-American hero. But Mathewson wouldn't have had the opportunity for his October exploits if his franchise repeated what they did in 1904 when owner John T. Brush and manager John McGraw refused to play AL champ Boston in the World Series. The public backlash to there being no World Series was quick and severe. The fans' anger proved to the owners that they needed to cash in and make the series an established tradition. Brush took most of the criticism, so he took it upon himself to organize the formal agreement of a best-of-seven series to be run by the Interleague Commission. There would be four umpires, two from each league, and to discourage players from throwing games and the series, 
the winner's share would be three times that of the losing team. The proceeds for the players would come from the first four games played. Many of these so-called brush rules are still somewhat in effect today. And with the exception of 1906, the National League will dominate the now-established World Series for the remainder of the decade, but the 1910s will be a different story. The Fall Classic has been a staple on the American sports calendar ever since. Now the timeline of events for the 1905 season. January 16th, Boston American League trades for former star outfielder Jesse Burkett from St. Louis. In return, it sends future AL batting champ George Stone. Burkett lasts only one unhappy season in Boston. Also on that day, outfielder Frank Huelsman is traded for the fourth time in eight months. February 5th, St. Louis pitcher Jack Taylor is spared being expelled by the National League after finding no evidence he threw games. Taylor drew suspicion by boasting he would make more money losing games in 1903 than winning them. April 10th, a New York magistrate rules Sunday baseball to be legal, but it's another 27 years before all major league teams begin to host Sunday games. April 26th, Chicago outfielder Jack McCarthy throws out three runners at the plate in a 2-1 win at Pittsburgh. April 29th, remember how I said that Matthewson had a single event that kind of went against his character? Well, it came on this day when he allegedly punches a young heckler during a game in Philadelphia. The incident flies in the face of Matty's wholesome. The whole game was a mess with Giants players fighting with the other team as well as the fans. May 3rd, a team from Washington finds itself in first place for the first time since 1893. The Senators' stay atop the American League standings would last just three days. May 19th, John McGraw receives a 15-day suspension and a $150 fine following arguments with umpires and Pittsburgh manager Fred Clark. June 8th. New York Giants pitcher Red Ames has a nine-game winning streak snapped by Pittsburgh. June 13th, Matthewson no-hit Chicago to become the first pitcher with two in the new century. Three-finger Brown loses his no-no bid in the ninth of that one-nothing loss. June 24th, Chicago Cubs pitcher Ed Rulebach goes 18 innings in beating St. Louis Cardinals 2-1. June 29th, Archibald Moonlight Graham, who was portrayed in Field of Dreams by actor Burt Lancaster, makes his only Major League appearance in a game for the New York Giants. June 30th, Cleveland American League superstar Napoleon Lajoie contracts blood poisoning after dye from his stocking gets into a spike wound on his leg. He's out for the rest of the season after just 65 games played, the new player manager sees his squad drop out of the race and finish fifth. July 1st, Chicago White Sox Frank Owen becomes the first American League pitcher to post complete game wins in both ends of a doubleheader against the St. Louis Browns. He allowed just nine hits in the two victories. Also pertaining to the White Sox franchise, the suspension of outfielder James Ducky Holmes causes a rift between owner Charles Kaminsky and American League President Van Johnson. July 4th, Boston Americans 38-year-old pitcher Cy Young 
and Philadelphia A's star Rube Waddell go toe-to-toe for 20 innings. Waddell gets the victory. July 8th, Boston and Philadelphia combined for 26 doubles in an American League doubleheader. Hobe Ferris of Boston has five of them. July 22nd, Weldon Henley of the Philadelphia A's no-hit St. Louis 6-0. August 1st, Frank Chance, Chicago Cubs first baseman, becomes the new player manager. He replaces Frank Seeley, who was suffering from tuberculosis at the time. Also on August 1st, New York Giants win their 12th straight game over Cincinnati. August 8th, Pittsburgh Pirates' Dave Brain hits three triples. And then on August 10th, Boston catcher Pat Moran does the same. August 19th, 18-year-old Ty Cobb is sold to the Detroit Tigers American League Club for $900 by Augusta of the South Atlantic League. August 24th, Ed Rulbach throws a 20-inning complete game in a 2-1 win at Philadelphia. Thomas Sparks also goes all 20 in the loss for the Phillies. August 30th, Ty Cobb's Major League debut in center field. He hits a double off Jack Chesbro. September 1st, Honus Wagner becomes the first pro athlete to endorse a commercial product. His contract with batmaker J.F. Hillerick and Son gives the company the right to put Wagner's autograph on his Louisville Slugger bat. September 6th, Chicago pitcher Frank Smith no-hits Detroit 15-0. That's the Chicago White Sox AL. That's the most lopsided no-no in history. September 8th, Pittsburgh Pirates leave 18 runners on base in an 8-3 loss to Cincinnati. September 14th, Joe Tinker and Johnny Evers of the Cubs get into a fist fight at second base during an exhibition game. The two agree to never speak to each other and don't for 33 years. September 16th, with regular second baseman Jimmy Williams not available, the New York Highlanders play left-handed thrower Wee Willie Keeler there in a doubleheader. It's the last occasion a lefty will play in the middle infield in a doubleheader. September 23rd, Ty Cobb hits his first Major League home run and inside the park shot. September 26th, Ed Walsh has two complete game wins in one day as the Chicago White Sox sweep a doubleheader from Boston. The next day, September 27th, in that same series, Americans pitcher Bill Deneen no-hits Chicago 2-0. October 5th, Philadelphia A's pitcher Chief Bender wins both games of a doubleheader against Washington. He helps his own cause with six hits and eight RBIs in the two games. And finally, on December 15th, a notable trade. After losing a post-1900 record 29 games in 1905, future Hall of Fame pitcher Vic Willis is traded from Boston to Pittsburgh. Now the final standings for the 1905 Major League season. Starting in the American League, first place in pennant winning Philadelphia Athletics, 92 wins, 56 losses, winning percentage of 622. Second place, Chicago White Sox, 92 and 60, 605 percentage. They finished two games back. Third place, Detroit Tigers, 79 and 74, 516 percentage. They're 15 and a half games behind. 
16 games back, fourth place Boston, 78 and 74, 513 percentage. Apparently the Boston offense dried up that year as Cy Young went under 500 despite having an ERA under 2. Fifth place, Cleveland, the tough luck team of 1905. They finished 76 and 78, 19 games back. I'll get into them in just a minute when I explain the AL pennant race. And their nickname that year was the Maps in honor of Napoleon Lajouet. Sixth place, New York Highlanders, 71 and 78, 477 winning percentage. They were 21 and a half games back. Seventh place, Washington, 64 and 87, 29 games. 29 and a half games off the pace. They played 424 baseball. And last place, 40 and a half games behind St. Louis Browns, 54 and 99. They had a 353 winning percentage. Now the National League champions again. First place, New York Giants. Another runaway, 105 and 48, 686 percentage. Second place, Pittsburgh finished nine games out at 96 and 57. They were 627 percentage. Third place, Chicago Cubs, 92 and 61. They still played 600 ball, but finished 13 games out. Fourth place, Philadelphia, 83 and 69, 21 and a half games behind at 546 for the season. Fifth place, Cincinnati, 79 and 74, 516 percentage, 26 games out. Sixth place, St. Louis Cardinals, 58 and 96. 377 percentage, 47 and a half games behind. Seventh place, the Boston Bean Eaters, the uh, current Braves, 51 and 103, 54 and a half games behind, and having an even worse season, 56 and a half games out. Last place, Brooklyn Superbas was their name then, 48 and 104. So those two. Teams at the bottom, Boston and Brooklyn, who just as recently as 1899 had fought for the pennant. Six years later, they are distantly behind the pack. Let's go over the league leaders for 1905. First, the American League batting champion, Elmer Flick of Cleveland at 308. Home run champion, again, Harry Davis of Philadelphia with just eight. Davis also wins the RBI title with 83 and the run scored title with 92. So Davis, a uh, heavy bat in that Philadelphia lineup, even though a very depressed offense throughout the entire American League that year. We'll get to that. Stolen base, first place, Danny Hoffman, also of Philadelphia, 46. And then pitching, Rube Waddell won all three categories, 27 wins, 1.48 earned run average, 287 strikeouts, but unfortunately his season will have a unfortunate ending. We'll get to that in a minute in the postseason section. National League leaders, and much more uh, diversity on this list, uh, the AL list, pretty much all Philadelphia A's. Batting champion of the Cincinnati Reds, Cy Seymour, 377. Also of Cincinnati, home run champ Fred Oddwell, he had nine. So both leagues, single-digit home run champions. Seymour won the RBI crown as well with 121 for Cincinnati. Mike Donlin of New York, 124 runs scored to lead the league. Donlin, 
an interesting figure. He really doesn't get much play in uh, baseball history as one of the great players, but of the guys whose prime of his career was in that dead ball area era of the 1900s, the first decade, he had the highest batting average of all, and he hit well into the 350s on this season, but not quite enough to win the batting crown. Stolen bases, two guys tied, Art Devlin of New York Giants, Billy Maloney, Chicago Cubs, both with 59. And then the Triple Crown winner for pitching in the National League, as I mentioned, Christy Mathewson, 31 wins, 1.28 ERA, 206 strikeouts. Now a more in-depth look at the postseason, the World Series. The New York Giants took over first place for good in the National League on April 23rd and cruised to that nine-game win over the Pittsburgh Pirates. Mathewson was joined in the rotation by former staff ace Joe McGinnity, as well as Red Ames and Dummy Taylor. The offensive attack was typical McGraw, very balanced, different guys doing different things, built around getting men on base and running the base as well. The Philadelphia A's outlasted first Cleveland and then Chicago in late September to claim its first pennant by two games in the AL. Connie Mack's squad actually blew a seven-game lead in a little over three weeks, but beat the Chicago White Sox two out of three games from September 28th to the 30th to put it away. The A's had 20-game winners in Waddell and Eddie Plank, plus 18 each from Chief Bender and Andy Copley. As I mentioned in the league leaders section, Waddell matched Mathewson in winning the AL Triple Crown. But that unfortunate event on a train from New York to Boston in early September robbed us of a Mathewson-Waddell dream pitching matchup. It also all but ended the A's chance to win the World Series. Waddell injured his shoulder in a horseplay fight with Copley. Waddell's streak of 44 shutout innings was snapped four days later in Boston and the injury ultimately ended his season along with his shot at 30 wins for the year. The A's led the American League with 623 runs scored, but hit only 255 in a season the entire league averaged just 241. The dead ball era was truly alive and well. Davis led the champions lineup with his 92 runs and 83 RBIs. Lave Cross knocked in 77 more while Topsy Hartzell and stolen base champion Danny Hoffman set the table and scored the runs. At the time, New York and Philadelphia were the largest cities and commercial markets in the country. Fans across the nation were enthralled by the matchup of managing Titans McGraw and Mack. Those factors, plus the superhuman heroics of Mathewson, raised the national consciousness of baseball to its highest level yet. Despite some pre-series gamesmanship on both sides, the five games were described as sportsmanlike and gentlemanly, certainly not the first words you'd think of about John McGraw. The gamesmanship early in the series, McGraw had the Giants take the field in the warm-up jackets that said world champions on it, a little premature. And after McGraw called the entire athletics team a bunch of elephants because that was their mascot, apparently the A's team got McGraw gift of a uh, ceramic elephant uh, before the series. Every game of the series was a shutout by the winning team. Even though they did lose a game, New York didn't allow a single earned run in the 45 innings played. Nine of the ten starters in the series went the distance. Mathewson won games 1, 3, and 5 by respective scores of 3-0, 9-0, and 2-0. McGinnity was the only other pitcher in the series for New York, 
He lost game 2-3-0 to Chief Bender, who tossed a four-hit shutout. McGinnity then bested Plank 1-0 in one of the best pitching duels in World Series history. Plank gave up an unearned run in the fourth to suffer the toughest of losses. Now, if Philly gets that unearned run instead, it's a 2-2 series and a best of three. But alas, it was 3-1, and Mathewson finished off the punchless A's in Game 5. A couple other notes from the series. In the 9-0 Game 3 victory, Dan McGann had three hits and four runs batted in in the win for the Giants. Also in Game 3, Bill Dahlin made some history by stealing home for the first time in the World Series. Donlin scored four runs in the series, while Briss Lord had the only two RBIs in the entire series for the A's. So that's a look at the 1905 World Series, the New York Giants becoming world champions for the first time over the first-time pennant winners, Philadelphia A's, 4-1 in the series. And we'll see what happens next time in 1906. This is the Baseball History Podcast. I'm Michael Wilkinson. Thanks for listening in, and have a great day. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well... To learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.